Well, hello, friends, and a special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. We're in week three of a series that we've called The Story of Us. And during this eight-week run, we're going to take a look at eight of the most incredible foundational ideas found in the New Testament of your Bible, according to me. So it's kind of a fun journey that we're on together. And uh, many, many of us are also, during the week, reading the New Testament for ourselves, some of us for the first time. And, and I got an email this week I wanted to share with you. Uh, it was a friend saying, I feel like I'm back in college and I'm way behind. Right, is that any of us in here? Yeah, like there's a bookmark that tells you the reading assignment for each day. And they're like, I feel so lame because it's only 10 pages and Jesus died on the cross for me and I can't read 10 pages. What do, you, what, what, what do I do? And I reminded them we have a rule um, and it's on your bookmark too. And it says this, each week is a new week. So if you're way behind, jump ahead, continue reading with the rest of us, and hey, you'll own the book for the rest of your life. You can go back and read it again anytime. Um, I had another friend suggest something. Uh, they said, you know, I just couldn't seem to find time to do it, and I went to Audible, and for $12, you can buy the books of the Bible, and you can listen to it. Um, and, and they said, and the guy that reads it has this fabulous British accent, so they're going to go find a church with a pastor with a British accent. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. But uh, yeah, so if that's you, Audible, if you have like a membership thing, it's one credit. It's like 12 bucks if you don't. So anyway, just a, a little heads up there. To catch you up if you haven't been with us so far, I just want to share with you the big ideas from week one and week two. In week one, we made the observation that without a resurrection, there would be no New Testament. Uh, there were no followers of Jesus at the cross. There were a bunch of people who used to follow Jesus, a bunch of people who believed stuff about Jesus, but when Jesus died, they thought it was game over. And then a few days later, they were confronted with something unbelievable yet undeniable. Jesus rose from the grave, and they went, and they told people about it, and they wrote about it, and that's how we got the New Testament. That was idea number one. Then last week, we took a look at something the Bible nerds call the incarnation, and the idea that God in Jesus came among us. And the implications of that are stunning. Our big idea was that Jesus didn't claim to have the best explanation of God. Jesus claimed to be the best explanation of God. And so we don't have to wonder what God thinks about things or feels about things or feels about us when we find ourselves broken because of our decisions. We simply watch how Jesus interacted with people. We'll never get closer to understanding the heart of God than by watching Jesus. That was last week. Now, as we continue this week, it's Vampire Sunday at Keystone. Okay, because we get to talk about blood specifically. That joke, I didn't think that was going to work, and it didn't. I'm just, it's gone. Second service, they're not getting that joke. Okay, because one of the things that you're going to read over and over and over again as you make your way through the New Testament is how the blood of Jesus shed on the cross changed everything. It's so much so that there's implications for every single person even 2,000 years later. And so to help you see why, I need to tell you about a conversation I had a few years back in jail. And uh, just to be clear, I was visiting. So if you were wondering, you know, so I did. And I was actually visiting a, a guy, young man that I had mentored for years, which also is a data point if you think, man, I wish Brady would mentor my kid. Maybe not. Okay, my track record is not great, but this particular young man uh, had just a lot of challenges, had this habit of making really destructive choices that came with dark consequences, and the older he got, the more dangerous his choices and the more extreme the consequences. And, and, and so I went to visit him in jail. I had to go through this whole process of getting approved to go to jail. Like, does anybody want to go to jail? But anyway, I had to fill out forms and had a phone interview and a background check, and then I got this letter in the mail with a stamp on it. Remember those? And it said, like, congratulations, you can go to jail. So I did. And uh, I sat in this eight by 10 cinder block room, you know, nasty plastic chairs, buzzing fluorescent light overhead. And, 
And, and uh, this kid that I had mentored for years, uh, he, he just kind of confessed what he was feeling. He said, I don't have anything but time when I'm sitting in jail. And I replay all my choices. And he goes, and I feel terrible. And he had grown up in church. Uh, he understood um, that, that uh, you know, life was full of choices and choices had consequences. And, but he really started thinking about God and how God feels about somebody like him. And so he asked me a series of really honest questions. I'll throw them up on the screen. Here are a couple that I think get to the heart of it. I mean, does God want anything to do with me after what I've done? He said, I just feel so unclean. Can he really forgive me? Like, I understand God forgives people, but, but would he want to forgive someone like me? And he said, honestly, I, I didn't make mistakes. I knew what I was doing was wrong, and I chose to do it anyway. He says, can I ever do enough to show God that I'm, that I'm sorry? I feel like I've created a debt with somebody or with humanity or creation or something. And I, I just, I don't know how I can ever make this right. And I noted as I sat there that it's not just people in jail that feel this way. If we're honest, we all deal with guilt and shame from the choices that we've made in the past. We all have whole seasons of life that we wish we could go back and do over. If anyone has a time traveling DeLorean, let me know, right? I, I mean, you would say, I don't like it when people ask me about my first marriage. It just wasn't, it wasn't anything I want to think about anymore. And I, I still kind of carry some, some scars from that. Or, or maybe for you, uh, there's you know, places that you don't want to go back to on vacation. Like someone says, hey, we should go back to there. And you're thinking, oh, no, I, I don't want to go there. I'm not even sure legally they'll let me back in there, right? I mean, it was, it was bad. Or someone asks you about college, and all you say is, like, I went. <laughs> and please don't ask me any further questions, right? And we do all sorts of things to cope. Naturally, as human beings, with the guilt and the shame we feel from the bad choices that we've made, I've had friends that would confess that for a season they used alcohol to sort of numb that guilt and that shame and just to survive. I've had others that, that would say that they chronically tried to work it away. Just if I just keep moving, if I keep busy, if I don't have to stop and think, then maybe, maybe it'll just sort of, I can keep it down here. I've had other friends say, and I, I try to give money away. And I, I, again, it's that idea that my choice has created a debt and I, I don't even necessarily know who. So maybe if I just give enough money away, these, these feelings of guilt and shame can go away. It's pretty common to feel like there's something we should do to make things right. And here's what's fascinating. Even people who aren't religious feel this way. So the question that I want to chase down with you today as we start to talk about blood is simply this. What do we do with our sin and our guilt and our shame. I mean, sin's a theological concept, guilt and shame. I mean, we all get that. So what do we do? What do we do with that? And here's the thing. Every religious system offers a solution to guilt and shame. They all have a, things that you can do to sort of make things right, but there's only ever been one person who's offered himself as the solution for sin and guilt and shame. Uh, 2,000 years ago, he came among us as Jesus Christ, and that's what he said. And here's the thing. Anybody that would said that is either insane or lying, or we should really lean in and, and listen. So to show you what I mean, um, we need to start at the beginning with the first sin. The Bible begins with a book called Genesis. And it begins with these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was a day where there was nothing, and then God spoke, and things began to happen. He creates sky and sea and plants and animals. And then on the sixth day of creation, he creates man, he creates woman, he creates them in his image, and he desires relationship with them. And this is hugely significant because God just could have created beings that would do his will and obey him. That was an option he had. But see, he wanted a relationship, and relationships are based on trust and love. 
And so in order for God to really know if they would trust and love him, he had to give them an opportunity to tell him that they did not. And so in the garden called Eden, where he placed them, he planted a tree, a forbidden tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he placed a boundary. He said, if you trust me about where life is found, if you believe I have your best interest in mind and I want you to thrive, I need you to stay away from that tree. It will be possible for you to eat from the tree. It's an option you have. But, but if you do, everything will change. And time goes on, and, and the first people, Adam and Eve, they begin to suspect God is holding out on them, that there really is a better life going their own way, and maybe that, maybe that tree holds the key to that life that's better than the life they have with God. And so the day comes, and they make a choice, and they do the one thing that God told them not to do, and in an instant, everything changes. Sin is unleashed like a virus throughout creation. It affects and infects Everyone and everything. And, and this is the world in which we live, friends. I mean, this explains the news cycle that constant, constantly barrages us with things that are just not okay. This week, the school shooting in Florida, as I'm watching the reports come in, and I just think, my goodness, this, this is the ravages of sin in our world. This, this is a picture of, of evil left unchecked. It just sort of runs. And then there was a follow-up story about women who are finally coming forward to, to kind of point the finger at people who have done awful things to them. You just think this, this breaks God's heart. And I think of marriages and families that are in shambles because of choices. I mean, the world in which we live is, is broken. And Genesis, the first book in the Bible, actually helps us see how it all got this way. But, but fortunately, fortunately, this is not where the story of the Bible ends. Because a few chapters after that choice that changed everything in the Garden of Eden, God makes contact with a man named Abram, later renamed Abraham. And he had many sons. That's a little song joke there, but never mind, right? Yeah. Now, Father Abraham had many sons and many sons of Father Abraham. Yeah. As far as we can tell, Abraham had no relationship with God up to this point, but God comes to Abraham and invites Abraham to travel to a land 500 miles away from his home, and he promises to give Abram's descendants that land. His, he says that your children, Abraham, will become a nation, and through that nation, the whole world will be blessed. Everything will change again. And Abraham has doubts. Uh, Abraham is in his elder years, and he has never been able to have a child he and his wife are, are barren, and the promises sound amazing. Actually, they sound impossible. And so to communicate his commitment to Abram in a way that Abram would understood, God does something which thousands of years later strike us as very strange. We'll pick up the story in Genesis chapter 15, verse 8. It goes like this. So the Lord said to Abram, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Didn't see that coming, did you? Right, yeah. Uh, Abraham brought these to him, cut them in two. Apparently, he knew what to do with the animals. Cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And when the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And I know what some of you are thinking. This is why I don't read the Bible. Like, what? This is crazy town. If you want to see a visual representation, some graphic artist on the web did this. <laughs> I know, right? It's like, okay. And you're like, why didn't the pigeons get cut? No idea. No idea at all. Well, to understand what's going on, I need to give you a brief history lesson. See, in Abram's world, everyone would have understood what was going on, and it would have left them absolutely 
stunned because God was cutting a covenant with Abram. It's where we get the language of cut a deal in business, but God was cutting a covenant with Abram, and it was an unprecedented moment in human history. Because in Abram's world, if you had asked the average person, you know, what are the gods like? They would say, well, the gods are angry and the gods are constantly watching and we have to constantly be sacrificing to them to sort of keep them at bay. And yet in Abram, we have a God who makes contact and reaches out to Abram and offers him relationship, makes a covenant with him. And in the ancient world, a covenant was a symbol of relationship. In Abraham's day, the you know, covenanted parties were seen as permanently bound together. And the cutting, symbolized by the slaughter of the animals, was dramatic and powerful. Each person who was making the covenant would basically say to the other, if I don't hold up my end of the deal, may what happened to these animals happen to me. And they would literally walk through the blood path. That was how you would ratify a covenant in the ancient world. Notice though, in Abraham's vision, he never walks the blood path. Instead, God, symbolized by a torch and a blazing fire pot, walks it twice. And the implications are stunning. I mean, this, this was a massive leap forward in, in human development because God literally made contact and said to Abram, whether you and your descendants are unfaithful or I am unfaithful, I will pay with my blood. But God doesn't have blood. Does he? Well, as history continues, God reveals a specific way for people to deal with their sin. Uh, Shortly after giving them the Ten Commandments or the first rules, God makes a way for them to make things right once they break the rules. It's like he knew they were going to break the rules and he wants relationship with them. And so God tells his people to build him a tent with an altar in front. Here's a reconstruction that someone made in the Holy Lands. You can pay $15.99 and tour it yourself if you're ever there. Um, but yeah, this is the structure that God had uh, instructed the people to make him. And in the front, uh, you'll see this square structure with four horns on it. That's the altar. And when you realize that you had done something wrong and the guilt and the shame became unbearable, God said, I want you to know that there's a way for you to make it right. And so uh, the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, not a really exciting thing to read, but it's the handbook for what to kill and when. Um, and there's, an offer, uh, there's one of the sacrifices called a sin offering. So when you realize you've sinned and you want to apologize and wash away the guilt and the shame, what you would do is you would, you would bring a lamb uh, I bought this, I got this lamb from uh, Wilson, my youngest room this morning while, whilst he was sleeping. Um, and uh, you bring a lamb to the altar and you would spill the blood of the lamb after placing your hands on the head of the lamb to sort of symbolically transfer your sin. And then the lamb would get killed. That was how that went. Yeah, I know. You're like, I don't believe he's doing this right now. It's like, yeah, yeah. So Boo, lamb killer, yeah. So yeah, you take the blood of the lamb, right? And you'd sprinkle it on the altar. And the promise was that the blood of this lamb would pay the debt that your sins had created and your relationship with God would be restored. In fact, there's one verse in Leviticus that that connects the blood to the forgiveness and the restored relationship. It's found in Leviticus 17, chapter 11. It reads this way. It says, for the life of a creature is in the blood. 
and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And atonement means compensation for wrongdoing. The blood of the lamb paid off the debt of sin. I'm placing my sins on the lamb. His blood is spilled. And notice that the sacrifice didn't just have to be a death, but the death had to be bloody. God invited these people to trust that the blood of the lamb could wash away their sins. And if they really could trust or believe this, this would change their lives because they could know that they were at peace with God. They could deal with their guilt and their shame. And the system worked, at least temporarily. But see, then the people would sin again because that's what people do. More sin and more blood and more sin and more blood. And in the days that Jesus was on planet earth during the festival times in ancient Israel, the blood flowed from the temple, the altar at the temple of Jerusalem, like a river uh, because there was so much sacrifice. And so what was needed was, was a different sort of sacrifice, a different sort of blood, but nothing on earth could ever wash away all the sin. So 1,500 years, this was, this was the system that people dealt with their sins. The blood slaughtered, flowed constantly. And then around 27 AD, a man named John the Baptist appears on the scene. And he's not called John the Baptist because, you know, to distinguish him from like John the Episcopalian or John the United Methodist, right? He's John the Baptist because he's John the Baptizer. He would immerse people in water in order to symbolize a fresh start that they wanted to make in life and in relationship with God. Uh, interesting footnote, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin and they were about the same age. And the text tells us that hundreds and hundreds of people would travel from Jerusalem almost 40 miles to be baptized by John. Here's a map of Israel, and I put a dot on approximately where the baptism site, uh, we believe, would have been. Uh, there's not much river there anymore, but if you go to Israel today, they've, of course, made a tourist attraction where you can get baptized in the Jordan River. That's a little bit to the north for $34.99. We'll take your picture. It's great. So anyway, uh, one day... John says something strange as he's in the process of baptizing people, um, and it's found uh, in one of the accounts of Jesus' life. Uh, it goes like this. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Literal translation, God has sent a lamb to lift up and carry off the sins of of the world. And in this context, what John says would have been startling. I mean, how could one lamb take away all sin? That doesn't even make sense. And what do you mean God sent a lamb? I and mean, we, we've got lambs everywhere, but this is like God's lamb. This is a different sort of lamb. I mean, they understood the, the blood and the forgiveness, but what's going on? It was a mystery for three years. But from this moment forward, Jesus lived a very public life. He called disciples and he taught them and he confronted the religious establishment of his day, but he also left a trail of hints that there was something to what John, or what, Jesus, what John said, because Jesus wasn't just a great teacher. He had a bigger mission. He kept saying that he was going to be arrested and he was going to be crucified, but his disciples thought, no way. There's no way they're going to arrest you. You're like a rock star. They can't even get near you. Plus, you've healed the blind. You've walked on water. You even called a man named Lazarus back from the grave. Dude, you're untouchable. But then after three years, after John's proclamation, Jesus was arrested and he was put on trial and he was convicted and he was beaten. His blood flowed and he was hung on a cross to die. And the accounts 
give us a detail that seems irrelevant except for what John the Baptist said. They record that when Jesus was crucified, he didn't die in the way people who are crucified normally died. You see, normally people who were crucified got suffocated because they would allow you to be, uh, Rome would allow you to hang on the cross for a, you know, a significant period of time so you'd suffer. But when they got sick of watching you suffer, they would break your legs so that you would suffocate. But when they came to break Jesus' legs, they didn't have to because Jesus had bled to death because of the whippings, because of the beatings. He didn't need to have his legs broken because he had bled to death. Fascinating detail. The New Testament writers spend significant time celebrating the blood of Jesus. And as you continue to read, you're going to see it over and over and over again. Uh, there's a book in the New Testament that you read soon called Hebrews. Uh, and Hebrews is written specifically to a Jewish audience. So there were Christians that were Jewish background and Gentile background. And if you, if you have a Jewish background, you're going to understand a lot about the blood and the sacrifice. Here's what the author of Hebrews says to some Jewish Christians. He says, the old plan was only a hint of the good things in the new plan. Since that old law plan wasn't complete in itself, it couldn't complete those who followed it. No matter how many sacrifices were offered year after year, they never added up to a complete solution. No matter how much blood flowed, people would continue to sin. So though it was a solution and would restore relationship with God, it was at best a temporary solution. But then check out what the author says a few verses later. He says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Holy, friends, means clean. Holy means forgiven. Holy means restored to right relationship. And he says, you know, it's the blood of Jesus that, that does this for you. It's not anything that you're going to do. It's, it's what's been done for you. It's, it's grace, and it's grace alone. The blood of Jesus was different because the blood of Jesus was the blood of God. And the New Testament really couldn't be any clearer. What can wash away your sins? What can wash away your guilt? What can wash away your shame? I mean, we, we know we can't because we've tried. Alcohol can for a moment. It can distract us for a while. Work, similar. But, but in the end, it's still there when we're alone with our thoughts at night. It comes rushing back. Money, giving away money, that can't. What can wash away your sin? What can pick up and carry off your sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus doesn't offer him a list of things for you to do as a solution to sin and guilt and shame. Jesus offers himself as the solution to sin and guilt and shame. So sitting in jail, my friend asked me some really important questions. What do I do with my regret and my guilt and my shame? And I shared with him what I want to share with you. I said, when they surface, you need to think about how much you failed, but then that your heavenly father invites you to take those memories of failure and create new mental memorials. When they surface, they no longer are memories of your guilt and shame from now on. They stand in your life as moments when God's forgiveness and grace and love invaded your reality. Same event, different interpretation. Not because of what you've done, but because of what has been done for you. And I said, this is going to take a while. 
This is a truth that is somewhat easy to grasp in your head, but takes a while to embed itself in your heart. But when it does, it changes everything. It's a new way to see the world. It's a new thing to trust. So what can wash away your sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Friends, it's one of the foundational ideas in the New Testament. As we close today, we have an opportunity to take communion together. And it's the perfect day to celebrate the blood of Jesus. And the night he was betrayed by one of his closest friends. Jesus had a final meal with them. And during that meal, he took common elements and infused them with uncommon meaning. He took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is like my body, which will soon be broken for you. And they didn't understand what he was saying. Then he took a cup of wine and he held it up. And he said, this cup represents a new covenant, a new testament, a new relationship between man and God in my blood, which will soon be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And then he said this, he said, when you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, remember me. Remember the teacher, but remember the savior. Remember the lamb whose blood washes you clean. In just a moment, the band is going to play a song appropriately called The Lamb of God, and you'll have an opportunity to come. There's eight stations. There's a few at the back, along the sides, and up in front. And I'll pray for us, and then when you feel ready, uh, you may come and take the bread and dip it in the cup and and remember. You don't have to be a member at Keystone to take communion with us. We don't have membership. Uh, We only ask that you have accepted the invitation of Jesus to be your Savior, that his blood covers your sin. And if you're still investigating, please feel no pressure uh, to participate. This is a safe space and there's no judgment here for that. And so let me pray for us uh, and then you're welcome to come. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you sent a lamb to do something that only you could do. We thank you for the cross and all it means. I pray for those of us that came in here today carrying guilt, carrying shame. I pray that somehow these words, your words, would help them understand that you desire them to thrive. You desire them to move forward and you have made a way where there was no way for them to move past the guilt, to move past the shame and instead to see those as moments in life where your grace invaded beautiful scandalous, undeserved, unmerited grace. So we thank you for the blood of Jesus. It's in his name we pray, everyone said, amen.